next we have a panel. So it's going to be Dr. Peters up here running the, the cases, but um, we'd like to have all of our panelists up here. So I think Dr. Osborne has to go to the airport, so, but. And while they're making their way up, I don't know if Marion needs any introduction, but I'll give her a brief one. Um, so Marion is uh, the John V. Carbone Endowed Chair and Professor of Medicine and Chief of Hepatology Research at UCSF. Um, hepatologist extraordinaire and also leads the ACTG Hepatitis uh, Transformative Science Group. I have to say that since she's my boss there. Um, but she's going to lead us through our case-based discussion here about prior treatment failures. Thank you very much. And I'd like to thank Melissa, who is now going to take eight and a half hours to get home after graciously coming to lecture to us. So that's above and beyond the call of duty. Thank you. So I, we have the first, uh, we have two case-based discussions, which should be uh, more interactive. We can, you can get up to the microphone and ask questions. Don't sit in your seat because we won't hear you. And we might answer a different question. So this is a patient who's a 56-year-old Hispanic man who was diagnosed with hepatitis C eight years ago. Five years ago, he was treated with interferon ribavirin and was a non-responder. And the data for that are that his pre-treatment viral load was 5.6 million, and at 12 weeks, it was 450,000. And treatment was stopped for futility. Dr. Quo, often patients say, you know, it was 450. Is that different from 200,000? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's a common question, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. well, and we're looking to see if they have that two-log drop by, by week 12. And if they don't, um, then it's predictive that they're not going to respond. And with PEG-RIBA, PEG your SVR rate is about 4 to 5%. Uh, and so it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to continue therapy. And so a lot of these patients say, well, I was so close. I was just there. And, you know, uh, why don't we just keep going? And, and you just show them the data, then it makes a little bit more sense to these patients. And how... What's the variability in HCV RNA, Dr. Wild? Um, well, we usually say about a half log uh, up and down um, pre-treatment. So he had a few you know, problems on treatment, fatigue, depression, anemia. So this is to remind you that you've seen this before, but this is very important to know what sort of response. If they did diddly squat on treatment, that's a null responder. That's bad less than one log. If they responded but relapsed, this is the treatment, you know, this triple therapy is the home for these patients. If they're a partial responder, they have less of a response with triple therapy. And you know we talked about, I'm not gonna try and blind anyone, RVR is a four week undetectable EVR, complete EVR is a 12 week, part, just EVR is two log drop. So our guy did diddly squat. So he says, I heard there are new drugs. Do I need treatment? He's tired. He's not sleeping well. He used to work construction, but he's on disability for back pain. This seems to be all my patients. Has a past medical history of depression, chronic back pain, 
he's on citalopram, he's on um, acetaminophen, hydrocodone for his back pain. He lives with his wife, he smokes marijuana daily. He quit heroin and alcohol when he was diagnosed, not uncommon. Um, what about marijuana? Anyone on the panel? Is it good or bad? You know, it keeps me getting up in the morning, Doc. Do you what do you tell your patients about marijuana? Um, I mean, I guess I would say, you know, you kind of take things in order. Obviously, alcohol's first and kind of, you know, you, you go down your list, alcohol's first, but um, you're maybe going to show us some s slides I about uh, yeah. some stuff. <laughs> but I think um, the thing I worry most about substance abuse would be just their clinic follow-up. So that would be one of the things I'd really concentrate on is, you know, do they make their appointments regularly? How many times do they cancel and things like that? I mean, those are key things you have to think about as you're going to go forward if you decide to treat this guy again. Now, he's already been through therapy, so it's maybe a little different, but he'll tell us some other things that maybe okay. why marijuana is bad. So I have to show you the marijuana data because we did it. So these, where are we? Back, did you go back? Okay, next slide just shows you his lab. And this is white count, 3.8, hemoglobin, 12, platelets, 108,000, INR, 1.2, enzymes are up, bilirubin's a touch-up, albumin's 3.5, normal's 3.4, his creatinine's 0.8, his viral load's 3.2 million, genotype 1A, his CT on his IL-28, because someone spent the money, his <laughs> hepatitis A, IgG negative, his alpha feta proteins are tad up, and his 25-hydroxy vitamin E is low. D is low. His ultrasound shows what they always tell you, increased echogenicity. So here's your first question. What do you want to do? Start him on milk thistle, thistle and vitamin E, stage his fibrosis, order a quadruple phase CT that Dr. Quo told you about, and an upper endoscopy, or tell him to come back in five years and uh, see Dr. Quo. Please choose. Okay, <laughs> Dr. Quo, what would you have done? Um, well, you know, I'm pretty familiar with this particular patient, and uh, you know, I'm a little bit suspicious that he's got advanced stages of fibrosis. Why? Um, yeah, I think his labs, his platelets are on the low side. He's relatively... Can you go back to this um, one? No, forward I think one. His, you know, the white count was like 3.8, and his platelet counts are relatively See? low. Um, and he's complaining of some fatigue and some insomnia, which might be you know, some early signs of some mild pachyencephalopathy. Often patients have that reversal of sleep-wake cycle. And so if I'm suspicious enough, and I think I am, you know, instead of ordering liver biopsy, which increased rate of bleeding in cirrhotics for the liver biopsy, I might order the CT scan and upper endoscopy, because if I see the nodularity and signs of portal hypertension on imaging and varices on endoscopy, I, I think this guy would avoid a biopsy. And what about his IgG, his hepatitis A, IgG, and vitamin D? Absolutely. <laughs> I definitely have to vaccinate. Um, so these, these patients are at risk for a second hit. They already have hepatitis C. Uh, and if you can uh, avoid uh, them contracting hepatitis A or hepatitis B. So I, I probably would also check his hepatitis B serologies and vaccinate them there too. And what about vitamin D? 
Yeah, so, so there's a lot of data that, that uh, has come out in recent years showing that vitamin D levels are associated with SVR with treatment. And so uh, if you can get their vitamin D levels, uh, therapeutics, sort of appropriate range, then they have better responses in interferon-based therapies. And what um, do you give for vitamin so, so D? So I, I do give sort of high-dose supplementation. A patient like this is, is fairly low, and so we'd give 50,000 units, um, you know, oh. uh, What do you give, Dr. Months. Wiles? We do 50,000. I mean... See, I give 25-hydroxy vitamin D. Because I think they have they don't poor, make their I think they're not making it in their liver. But lots of people give just straight vitamin D. But if they come to my clinic, I tell them to throw it out and take the 25-hydroxy. <laughs> but that's obviously not proven. <laughs> Next, so I also thought he was cirrhotic because he has a low platelet count. There's no point in doing a liver biopsy. It, you know his stage. So we did a CT, and lo and behold, he has few varices, bit of a spleen, no ascites, and he has a nodular liver. He got his EGD because Dr. Quo was looking after him, and he has a touch of varices. He's a child's A, so normal, you know, very close to normal CPT. MELD is 9. You advise him to stop marijuana, and you switch him off the acetaminophen because you don't want to take too much acetaminophen, two grams a day is sufficient. You vaccinate and replete his vitamin D. This is the data, this is some of the data from uh, cannabinoids. And you can see on the left that the fibrosis increases in older patients and in those who take marijuana daily. But if you also add alcohol to the mix, it increases quite markedly. And on the right compares occasional to daily uh, marijuana use, and you can see it increases. And if you're drinking alcohol, it increases even more. So this is sort of the bad news, because often marijuana is what gets them through their treatment and their side effects. Mm -hmm. The study we did said that if you already had fibrosis, daily marijuana markedly increased progression of fibrosis over a three-year period. Whereas if you had zero fibrosis, we didn't find marijuana increased over a two to three-year period. So for him, clearly, marijuana is not doing him any good, but he's given up two of his poisons. It's sort of hard to know quite if you treat him if he refuses. So he comes back for his second visit. He's actually come to Jesus, and he's been very religious in all his <laughs> visits. So what do we do now? Retreat him with Peg Riber for 72 weeks, give him Tilaprovir or Bisaprovir, refer him to a clinical trial with perhaps all orals, refer him for transplant. Dr. Coe was quite anxious there. <laughs> or refer him for mm. somebody else you don't like. Most people want to treat. Panel agree with that? Agree. Yeah. Okay. And I always offer patients interferon-free trials because yeah, you, you saw that 100% response. There's nothing like a phase one, phase two study where they treat 10 people and they all are cured. Remember the very first study of interferon with Jay Hoofnagel at the NIH? I was part of it. 
3 million units three times a week, seven out of the 10 had SVRs. <laughs> Subsequently, the real number was 5%. So you can see being in a clinical trial is really beneficial for the patient. <laughs> <laughs> so, the reason you want to treat, and this is looking at some really beautiful data from Bacchus, where he looked at a, a huge number of patients in the VA system, 12,000 genotype 1, nearly 3,000 genotype 2, 1,800 genotype 3, and looked at SVRs, which occurred in 35% of 1, 72% of 2, and 62% of 3. No big surprise there and looked at all-cause mortality and showed that you reduced mortality when you had an SVR by 30 to 50%. So this is really, these are people with huge comorbidities. 20% of them had uh, diabetes, nearly 50% had hypertension. These were your vets. And they still got a great, not only a great response, but an improvement in all-cause mortality. And this is another study, a smaller number of patients followed SVR, non-SVR over, over 10 years. And you can see that those who had an SVR really had a much greater transplant-free survival. So showing really the ultimate outcome that if you get an SVR, you can improve survival, not just turn off the virus. So here are the data that you, I know you've seen over and over, but on the grounds that you cannot see it too many times, these are prior interferon failures treated and looking at their SVR with triple therapy, genotype 1, telaprevir, PEG-RIBA. And you can see, compared to PEG-RIBA in red, that if you're a prior relapser, you have a splendid chance of an SVR. So if you became, if you stayed negative throughout treatment in the past and then relapsed, this, these are the patients who do extraordinarily well. If you only came down somewhat, 50 to 60%, and if you didn't respond like our patients, it's around 30%. Now we add to it uh, severity of disease. So SVR, whether you're a relapser, a partial responder, or a non-responder, whether you're F0 to 2, mild disease, moderate, severe. And you can see all the relapses do pretty well. Well, you should be treating relapses. However, the partial responders the worse your fibrosis, the lower your chance of response. And null responders, not terrible, not great, but not terrible if you have mild to moderate disease, but pretty dismal if you have severe disease, 14%. These are post hoc analyses. These are the Brasepravir data. If you're a relapser, you do well, and I keep reminding the, you that these numbers are lower, but you compare them to what the PEG-RIBER showed. So it doesn't really matter what the number is, it's what the enhancement is. And really when you compare the addition of Brasepravir with the addition of Telaprevir, they're pretty similar. So 
for relapses, you do great. For partial responders, less well, and they didn't study non null responders in this group. And if you add fibrosis, comparing those with mild disease on the left, left and those with severe disease on the right, response-guided therapy is the same as treatment for a year, whereas on the right, if you're cirrhotic, you really have to treat them for the year. And that was data that um, Dr. Weil showed you just before. So, combination of telaprevir or bisepravir is the new standard of care for genotype 1 with pegriba. You cannot use it alone because of resistance. Naive is about 30% increment over pegriba alone for both drugs. Partial responders, it only goes up to 50 to 60%. And for null responders, we really only have data for telaprevir. And it's lower, as was told to you, before for blacks and those with advanced fibrosis. So what do we treat him with? Would the panel like to, do they have any bias about what they treat him with? You know, I, I, I try not to have a bias. I, I try to just uh, present the data to the patients and, uh, and try to pick it based on side effect profiles. Uh, but I, I would say that and in San Diego, it seems to be about a six to one or even a seven to one or even higher than that ratio of uh, most patients are preferring telaprevir versus bisepravir. And so if, if they have some dermatologic issues, uh, then I'd, I'd try to steer them towards the bisepravir. Um, uh, but uh, when, you, when you show them the, 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 the treatment um, uh, schema, um, it's just a lot simpler for them to understand the telaprevir you know, the treatment schedule, and they tend to gravitate to that, and they, they sort of fixate on this you know, uh, 12 weeks of triple therapy, and then they, they sort of forget that there's going to be like you know, potentially a 36-week tail of pegriva. Um, uh, but they, they like that 12 weeks, and they, they sort of zoom in on that number. So I think a lot of my patients are preferring telaprevir. And it's a little tougher in this patient because you can't give him as definitive data for his particular setting being a null responder um, with both separate as you just mentioned. So it's a little tougher. At our institution, we're using a lot of telaprevir. I think it started because of provider comfort with that particular agent and experience with the algorithm, but I think a lot more we are doing, as Dr. Kuo said, presenting the side effect profiles and asking the patient to kind of pick their poison. So we started with a lot of telaprevir because it seemed easier for us simple folks to follow. But given all the side effects, we're actually doing more bisepravir now. So I think you, I think the answer is do one, get familiar with it. If you don't like it, do the other. <laughs> so there are no head-to-head -head studies. People say the numbers for telaprevir are better, but that's because the pegriber alone was better. So this is telaprevir, same data you've seen. And this is bisepravir, showing again a similar increase. Well, I think we're going to stay on this. So you decide to treat him with telaprevir because he lived in San Diego. And that's <laughs> the drug they use down there. And so he gets telaprevir, standard pegylated interferon, alpha-2A, 180 micrograms a week, and 800 milligrams of ribavirin, which is weight-based. He starts off at 2.8 million, and at week four, mirabile dictu, his HCV RNA is less than 43. So this is 
what? Rapid virologic response, excellent. <laughs> so you, you tell him, and he's absolutely thrilled to hear that because his chance of an SVR panel Yeah. Is he undetectable? Yeah, 90% more, perhaps. So week six, he calls you complaining of a maculopapular rash involving his arms and his legs and anorectal pain and itching, which he didn't have before. What do you do now? Hold the tilaprovir, treat with antihistamines and steroids. Hold the ribavirin, treat with antihistamines and steroids. Hold both of them, treat the same, continue all drugs, treat the same. Both your contents. This is preparation for tomorrow. <laughs> okay, panel agree with that? Yes. Yes, okay. So just to remind you, if it's mild, continue all drugs, topical steroids and antihistamines, and monitor. You have to monitor. You have to see the patient. You can't monitor over the telephone. It's hard to know what the rash looks like and how much it is over the telephone. As I told my niece, who called me with a rash from Australia last week, one thing for sure I can't tell you is what the cause is. <laughs> Antihistamine options, I put these in your handout because the their choices depending on if they want sedating or non-sedating ones. And this is the topical steroid options that are not in my head, but they are on the wall in my office, going from least potent to most potent. Helpful to have. The management of the rash, if it's severe, and you'll hear this again this afternoon, is to stop the tilaprovir continue pegriber, antihistamines, and if no improvement, stop everything. And you measure the rash, and I'll tell you this again this afternoon, arms and head are 9% each, front, back, leg, leg, 18% each. That's how you add it up. So if it's more than 50%, it's severe. And the good thing is it's all... Uh, multiplication by nine, which most of us can still do. <laughs> Treatment of anorectal symptoms, really awful problem with our patients with tilaprovir. Didn't seem so in the phase three studies, but seemed a lot more. I don't know how you felt, but we're in the phase three. We had a little bit of pruritus ani, but not mega deal. So the important things is to use hydrocortisone cream or try witch hazel and use suppositories. I think this is a critical issue that shouldn't be ignored. You need to ask the patient because they're not going to tell you because it's got nothing to do with their liver. So you have to ask them if they have the symptoms. So at 10 weeks, you, you, we did what we said. His rash didn't get worse. What if his rash had got worse at 10 weeks? What would you have done, Dr. Weil? Um, I mean, if it got enough to where you think it's se severe, I mean, it, again, it comes back to you have to judge how, how bad it is and how severe He's it ready is. ready to shoot his wife. Ready to shoot his wife. Yeah. Well, does he like her? And he can't um, tell whether it's the rash or the pruritus ani, but yeah. both are just becoming intolerable. Yeah. 
Well, you know, he's a cirrhotic, he's a prior null. I, I'd get nervous about stopping early. You know, if he's a naive and was undetectable week four or some of them like week two, I would feel more comfortable. I'd try to push him. The other thing I'd do is talk to him about make sure he's taking it with fat correctly. We've noticed with the paritis ani, um, if they're not taking it with enough fat and they're getting more drug delivered distally, um, that if, if you re-educate them, that can improve. Dr. But, you know, I think um, you have to sort of weigh the, the, the risks and the benefits here. He's, he's pretty close to the week 12 stopping. And if, uh, if you look at some of the phase three studies that looked at the response rates for patients that reached week 10, uh, the added benefit is, is pretty minimal. You're only getting about six to eight extra you know, percentage points of SDR. And so if things were really not uh, tolerable, I'd, I'd consider stopping it at, at week 10. Stopping the telaprevir, but keeping the peg rather going. So I think it's a balance. Because on one side, the data suggests that if you make it to week eight, you only get an increased benefit. But on the other side is we know the cirrhotic is less likely, yeah. a cirrhotic null responder is less likely to respond. Now, we don't have data carved down into those that went from eight to 12, how many were cirrhotic. There'd right. be one or Very two, so numbers. there's just useless yeah. to be able to answer. But in practice, what it means is that after week eight, if things are getting pretty iffy in the household or with the patient, you can stop. And you tell the patient you're going to lose a few percentage points, but you had an RVR. If, don't, don't keep going till you have to stop everything. I think that's really important. Mm -hmm. Anyway, his symptoms didn't get worse. But he calls, or his wife calls, I think, complaining he's got abdominal distension, malaise, and forgetfulness for a couple of days. His weight's up 12 pounds, it's all that ice cream, and his wife says he's not acting right. So what do you do? Decrease the dose of PEG interferon, decrease ribavirin, stop telaprevir, ask him to come see you, order labs and an ultrasound, Tell him to lay off the cookies and ice cream and take ginkgo biloba. I use biloba, right? Stop <laughs> all drugs. Panel, agree with that? I think. Yeah. As long as he gets in right away, I mean, um, that story is pretty convincing to me that he's got decompensated disease. I mean, so if he can come in that same day and be seen, sure, you could have him come in first and assess him and then decide to stop. But um, I mean, I would, we, you know, they can go south fast, and I, I wouldn't be too hesitant to stop everything, especially if he wasn't coming in right away. So don't make him appointment for next available. Right. Especially if it's UCSF three months down yeah. the line. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So he needs to come in ASAP, right. urgent care, ER, or your office. Okay, very important point. So his ultrasound shows new moderate ascites. His platelet count's dropped, his white count's gone up, his hemoglobin's a little bit lower, his INR's gone up, his bilirubin's gone up, his albumin's gone south, he's now got a touch of virus, his creatinine's nearly doubled, his urine sodium's less than 10, his MELD score's 22, and he's group A positive. This is a sad man. Yeah. 
Um, I think the next is a question, but if it isn't, we'll go back. Can you go back one? So what would you do with him, Dr. Wilde? I'd call Dr. Quo. <laughs> All right, Dr. Dr. Quo, what would you do with him? Well, you Can you just go through the <laughs> problems? Sure. So, I mean, this, this person needs emergent admission to hospital uh, with, uh, you know, the transplant team needs to, to follow him emergently. Uh, clearly, he's decompensating. I think his MELD before we started was, was nine or some, yep. some other number. Uh, so now he's, he's, he's quite decompensated. And, and what I'd be most worried about with the high white count and the ascites and the renal failure would be uh, spontaneous bacterial peritonitis. And so, you know, he'd need a diagnostic paracentesis urgently. And with his urine sodium less than 10, uh, uh, either he's dehydrated or um, more likely he's got some mild hepatorenal syndrome. So he needs sort of the full court press to stabilize him and uh, you know, possibly even an urgent liver transplant workup if he doesn't turn around. And how common is a high white count with SVP? It's not common. And, and actually, and unfortunately, a lot of these cirrhotic patients will, will present uh, with no fever, with minimal abdominal uh, symptoms. Uh, they might have the ascites, but they won't have the guarding or the rebound that you'd associate with peritonitis. They might not have a high white count and they have no fever. And so, you know, there, there have been a number of, of really nice studies, um, mainly out of India, which looked at um, uh, the, the prevalence of SPP in hospitalized cirrhotic patients uh, that were asymptomatic. And some were up to 20 to 30 percent of these hospitalized patients with no symptoms, no localizing symptoms, had SPP based on their diagnostic paracentesis. So very, very common problem. So having ascites equals must be tapped. <laughs> so first presentation of ascites must be tapped. If you can't do it, send it to IR. They know how. But it's really important. And the second important thing is the fluid has to go into blood culture bottles at the bedside. Because you send it down in the little ID tube for a gram stain, the chance of getting a positive uh, culture is 42%. If you send it down in blood culture bottles, because after all, bugs love blood, it goes up to over 85%. So it's, and these studies are 30 years old. They've been um, redone a couple of times, but all microbiology labs have completely forgotten them. So you have, every transplant center knows that. But if you're not at a transplant center, it's really important to know that these studies are incredibly well validated. So you admit him, you do a diagnostic paracentesis, his ascites cell count is over 2200, so over 500 is SVP, predominantly polys, so you start him on the standard of care, and why do we give him albumin on day one and three, Dr. Quo? Well, you, if you don't give him albumin, they have a higher risk of you know, evolving into pararenal syndrome. So this is really sort of a renal protection um, uh, uh, strategy. And this is shown in a beautiful randomized controlled study from Barcelona. So it's also essential to know. And why do you start IV cefatoxin? We can ask the ID guys, <laughs> you know? Well, you're gonna cover, I mean, the most prevalent bug you're gonna get if you isolate one, it's gonna be an, you know, an enteric gram negative, but you can also have gram positive, so you're getting most mostly towards enteric gram negatives, E. coli, and such. Okay, and how many days would you treat? 10 to 14. How many days do you treat, Dr. Quo? But then secondary five, prophylaxis. Five days IV, and then um, you know, they'll, they'll need to be discharged in oral prophylaxis. 
right? And unless they have bacteremia. If they have bacteremia, they get the 14 days. Okay, so look at this. You fixed him. His creatinine, which was 2.2 with those goodies and albumin, it came down to 0.9, and you sent him home on diuretics, ferrosamide to spironolactone, you do 2.5 to 1, right? So... You're starting at either 25 and 75 or 20 and 75 or 40 and 100. And then you balance it according to the results of the sodium and the potassium. And lactulose for his not feeling right. And if lactulose, he calls you back and he has so much diarrhea he can't get to the store, what do you do, Dr. Quo? Well, then I'd, I'd move to rifaximum. Okay. Very nice study, New England Journal, two years ago, rifaximum decreases markedly the development of new encephalopathy or hospitalization for encephalopathy in patients on lactulose. Dose, 550 milligrams BID. Okay. So what do we do now? We fixed his SVP, we fixed his hepatorenal, we're treating his encephalopathy. What about his hep C? Do we go back on telaprevir, just leave peg riba, leave out pegylated interferon, stop everything, send him for transplant, or send him to your enemy? about choice number two, Dr. Quo? Yeah, you know, this, this guy has really declared himself. He's made that transition from compensated to decompensated cirrhosis, and he's had a life-threatening complication with the SVP. So I wouldn't uh, re-challenge him with the interferon. I I'd really would stop all the treatment. And, and now you're no longer, um, you know, safe uh, reintroducing any interferon-based therapies. You're really in the, in the ballpark of um, referring to a transplant center for workup. So I think that the 25% here, they really need to have a good lawyer. Because this, <laughs> this, this is absolutely contraindicated. And there are loads of pap papers in the literature that once somebody decompensates, you must stop because that patient will die. Because if you think about, they have a 1,000 cells and a in their liver and 100 are virally infected and you kill them, you have 900 to move on. But if you have 100 cells in your liver and 90 are virally infected, you kill the virus in the liver, but you also kill the patient. So it's really important that patients who, are, who have any decompensation, you stop everything. It's bad luck. But continuing is a disaster. So do people have any questions or does the panel have any questions about treating somebody who's cirrhotic, how often they decompensate, how you need to monitor them? Do you monitor your cirrhotic differently from your F2s? Yeah, yeah definitely. I, I, these are the ones that keep me up at night, you know, and, and when, I, when I have to make a decision to treat a cirrhotic, even if they're a child's class A, uh, you know, you never know where the, what's going to happen if they're going to decompensate or not. And so these patients I'll see weekly. Um, and if, if I have any concerns, uh, yeah, I might alternate with my nurse practitioner as well to see them even more often than that. 
Uh, but in the beginning, the first few months, I'd see them every single week. And if they're stable on the therapy, then I might sort of um, uh, uh, you know, string it out to every two weeks or every four weeks, uh, but after the first uh, you know, two months or so. And do you do transplant evaluations on old child's A cirrhotic prior to treatment? Not, not everybody, uh, yeah, but you'll see a variation in, in different transplant centers. You know, some transplant centers will work every cirrhotic up for, for transplant if they're planning to treat them on the, uh, the assumption that if they decompensate, then you have them on the list and potentially you can, you can salvage them with transplant. Uh, but I think that's a little bit of overkill. Uh, and, and unfortunately, resources are, are, are limited where you know, it's pretty tough to work up every single cirrhotic since most of these patients are now presenting with cirrhosis. And so I'll, I'll tend to work up the patients that, um, that might be sort of borderline uh, child's A or child's Bs, the ones that you know, might have had that variceal bleed five years ago, but they've been stable recently. I might work those patients up. Uh, often what we'll do is we'll present them at our selection committee meeting, decline them for listing because they're too early, uh, but have the workup completed so if they do decompensate, it's easy for us to bring them back to the committee and, and activate them then. Yes. What's the maximum meld you would start anybody on treatment just from the beginning? Um, it's, um, I, I don't generally think about the meld as the, um, uh, as, as, as the marker or the, or the standalone you know, uh, you know, metric for me to decide. It really, it's, it's, it's compensated versus decompensated. Uh, and, and if they've had decompensated liver disease any time in the past, even if their MELD score now is six or seven, I'd be very, very leery about uh, treating that patient. So the ones that, that get us in trouble are the ones that, that come to us from, from referring docs uh, and their history is not so clear and they're on lactulose once a day, and they're on 20 and 50 of, you know, the, the frosamide and the spironolactone. They have no ascites, no edema. Um, they look pretty good, and their labs are pretty good, but somebody at some point put them on these drugs because they were sicker than they are now. And so I think they've already made that transition. They've declared themselves as decompensated. You should respect that. Um, and, and, and in our experience, we've treated... Um, you know, about 80 to uh, about 80 patients with cirrhosis with with the triple therapy agents, and uh, you know we've had a pretty high rate of serious adverse events with uh, a lot of decompensations, serious infections, uh, and even one death. And so I think you have to be really concerned about that. And and you know once they've made that transition, that's when I am leery about it. Yes. Um, so I think you made it pretty clear that I w as a you know, in private practice, would not want to treat a patient who is uh, cirrhotic uh, with, you know, any, any of the new combos. Should this be a patient that should wait for the new uh, non-recommended mm -hmm. treatment? They were newly diagnosed yeah. with cirrhotic, cirrhosis, probably didn't have cirrhosis just a few years ago. So I think that's the real challenge yeah. that we, we fight with. At UCSF, anybody with cirrhosis gets a transplant eval prior to initiating therapy. And we, because it made the transplant team nuts because all these low meld people who didn't need a transplant were being evaluated, we made a mini eval. So does the patient have any extra hepatic disease? Does the patient, um, would the patient be a candidate to have the social, does have they have someone to support them? Are they on any substances? Do, are they compliant? So if they're not, we tell the patient that you won't get a transplant if you decompensate. And I think they need to know that because in the real world, as I'll show you this afternoon, it's quite high. 
And if they are a candidate, then we do what Dr. Quo said, we talk about them at selection, but at least they're in the back of the mind if they do decompensate. But, but I think your, your question's a good one yeah. in, in that, um, you know, should you wait you know, for some of these new agents, interferon free agents? And, and, and that, that decision depends on how quickly you think these drugs are gonna get here, right? And so um, my suspicion, uh, similar to Melissa's earlier, was that you know, these interferon free regimens aren't, are probably not gonna get here until 2015. Um, and, and the first wave of these interferon-free agents are probably gonna be for the genotype 2-3 patients, uh, where, where some of these clinical trials are farther along in phase three, uh, whereas the interferon-free genotype one, which is 70 plus percent of our patients that we see in the United States, uh, we might have to wait perhaps until 2016. Um, and so what is the risk that that compensated cirrhotic patient is gonna decompensate in the next four years? That, that's sort of the question. And, and, and if you know that the rate of transition from compensated to decompensate is about 5% per year, you're looking at you know, a 20% chance of decompensation. And so you have to weigh that against the risk of them decompensating on interferon-based um, regimen, right? And, and I think, Marion, you're gonna sh show some yeah, of that, the, the cubic data, data from, from the French group, which looks at uh, you know, the child's acerotics and, and the risk of decompensation, and I think that's coming up. So it's a difficult issue. What, I mean, one thing you can do is refer them to an all-oral interferon uh, study and also monitor them closely, because we don't yet know the answers that if you're on an all-oral, we know with interferon you can precipitate decompensation. We don't know the answer to all orals. You might precipitate decompensation there as well. Yeah, I don't... You're right, we don't know. I mean, the tough thing, obviously, once they decompensate, you're not going to be, be able to get them into clinical trials we have right now. But I think you're right, and Marion and Alex could probably tell you better the um, experience with Hep B, but where we now have, you know, interferon-free hepatitis B therapy, there are patients who are decompensated on transplant lists who get effectively treated for Hep B, and they come off if you don't have to use interferon. And I, I do think the same thing will probably happen when we have effective interferon-free for hepatitis B, that you'll see patients, you know, come off transplant lists and things like that, but we obviously don't know yet. Um, and I do think, I mean, Alex is right, I think until you have an interferon-free trial, a phase three trial that's been through and the regimen's actually approved, it's probably going to be several years. Um, but probably in 2014, we're going to have an NS5A approved, a nucleotide approved, and a next-generation PI. And there will be phase two B data with those in combination interferon-free, but it won't be phase three data. So. And then also be uh, decompensated patients in transplant centers being treated with all oral. Yeah. next year and the year after. Yes, sir. So in general, your child's QB, otherwise things are fine. They have family support, they're ready, they're, everything else is fine. In general, what percent of those patients, and you, and you do all your workups, you have your, 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 your liver transplant folks take a look, the stars are lined up. In general, what percent of those are you now treating? So Couple we're comments. treating... From, comment from north and south. Okay, <laughs> so at UCSF, we're treating only a handful of patients when they're listed and on the list, and we're treating those who actually have live, live donors, so we know when their liver transplant's going to happen, so we have it all set up, so we can make them lose virus knowing we don't have to go ad infinitum to risk the decompensation. So that's probably the safest way to look at it. And I think we're up to number 10 in our patients so far. Is a handful 5%? We're up to 10 patients 
so far? Ballpark percentage. I think, 2%, I think 5%, 10%. Oh, so we transplant 240 patients a year and 50% of them have hep C. Uh, your, your question is what percentage of your child's Vs are you actually treating? And, and I'd, I mean, if, if, if Marion is treating about 10%, uh, she's, she's a good amount braver than, than me, I think. I, I am not treating almost any of these patients uh, with interferon-based regimens. Some of it comes from um, what their previous response to interferon has been. I mean, if, if they were no responders to PEG-RABA before, uh, and you know that their response to tilapavir is going to be a 14% SVR with their cirrhosis, uh, I think the risk benefit's not there. Um, the, the, the child's A in the, in the, the French cubic data shows there's going to be a, a risk of decompensation of 4.4%, 2% mortality uh, in child's A patients. This has not been studied in child's B. Uh, although a, a handful of child's B sort of slipped into the, to the, the French cohort. So I think it's a data-free zone. And, and in, even in our, in our patients that we are um, uh, a little bit um, uh, brave about treating, um, and they're fairly carefully selected, the majority are, are child's A, we're seeing a lot of side effects and, and decompensation. So I'm a little bit nervous. I, I think the child's Bs, um, you know, I, I would definitely list them for transplant, work them up for transplant. Uh, they have to, you know, they have to pass the eyeball test. I mean, they got to be looking pretty good for, you know, playing tennis and golf and stuff before I would, uh, <laughs> before I would treat these guys. Yeah, these are really the patients you don't want to have anything to do with. You send them to a transplant center. So, we, you know about the natural history. We've talked about that with uh, decompensation occurring. And after the first decompensation, survival in hep C alone is 74% uh, at one year down to under 50% at four years, at five years. So really, once you have a touch of ascites or a little bit of confusion, you are going down the track towards death. So the hepatologist stops all the treatment, refers the patient to a transplant center. He's listed, but by then his MELDs dropped from 22 down to 15. Then a year later, lucky for him, he has a baroseal bleed, goes into hepatorenal again. His MELD rises to 31, which puts him on the top of the list because remember he's uh, blood type A, so you only need a MELD in the high 20s, and he gets a transplant. But he's viremic. So his chance of being viremic after transplant is 100%. And his one-year protocol biopsy showed stage 2 fibrosis. The donor genotype was CC, and he was CT, if you remember. And his immunosuppression consists of tacrolimus 3 milligrams twice a day. Dr. Kaiser, do you have any trouble with uh, reciprovir and telaprovir in patients with on tacrolimus? Uh, indeed. <laughs> I do have a big problem. So um, tacrolimus is increased 70-fold by tilaprovir, and it's increased 17-fold by bisepravir. So we're going to have to do something with that tacrolimus dose or dosing interval if we're going to use triple therapy. So it's not to be tried at home. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so what do we do now? Retreat him with tilaprovir pegriba, give him bisepravir pegriba, give him peg riba or wait and do another biopsy in a year.
Okay, so it's a mixed bag. Dr. Wiles? Yeah, it probably reflects the fact that there's not a lot of good data out there to, to guide this, I think, more than anything else. What, was, what did this first class we show it one year again? How much? Uh, two out of four. Two out of four. Yeah, uh, I don't think you're going to wait a year probably to rebiopsy in any way, but you're probably going to have to do something. So it's going to be tough, but you probably try with the PI, maybe. Yeah, I mean, there's just no, there's not much data. You're going to show it a little bit. Maybe there is. But. Yeah. No, I'm not going to show the data. It's only a handful of yeah. patients. Dr. Clark? No, no, I would... Um, well, it's evolving target, um, but, but what, what I would say is that F2 at one year is, is pretty advanced disease, and if you did nothing, uh, this guy's going to be in trouble at risk for um, uh, you know, early cirrhosis and, and might need retransplant if he's even eligible. So I think you've got to treat him. The question is, what do you treat him with? Um, the um, drug-drug the, the interactions are, are, are so scary uh, that you know, most, most, most uh, treaters and, and even experienced transplant centers uh, are um, just sort of you know uh, dipping their toes in the waters with these with these drugs, uh, but at UCSC what we're doing is uh, we're trying to um, you know convert these patients to cyclosporin instead of telapivir because the 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 AUC increases um, are are not as dramatic um, uh, with cyclosporin versus tacrolimus and then uh, using bocetrivir in combination since again the 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 the, the drug drug interactions are, are less problematic. So I would try the bocetrivir. And then the other thing you can do is uh, you could sort of take advantage of sort of that lead-in principle, especially if they're treatment naive and you do the four weeks of peg lead-in. If they're undetectable by week four, which, you know, it could happen, it's unlikely to happen, but if it does happen, uh, you, you might, um, you know, spare them the, the protease inhibitor altogether because their, their likelihood of SVR is going to be pretty darn high at that point. Um, but if they don't have undetectable by week four, then, then I would go ahead and add the bocetrivir. And I think Dr. Kaiser is going to talk to you this afternoon after lunch that, you know, these transplant, transplant patients are on multiple drugs. They're on drugs for hyperlipidemia. They're on drugs for depression because they had a transplant. They're on drugs for immunosuppression. So there are going to be multiple interactions. So you really need a team to treat the patients. And we also uh, have gently thought about putting our toes in the water and switch patients to uh, cyclosporin, because if you try and d decrease the dose, and Jennifer, you'll have to correct me, but when you're on a pro an HIV protease inhibitor, you decrease the prograph to maybe 0 0.5, 0 0.25 once a week, if they're on two and two or four and four. But if you're gonna go down 70-fold, that's sort of like passing the pill under your nose <laughs> once a month. It's sort of hard to know how to get that dose. Yeah, th therapeutic drug monitoring will play a really important role in this setting. You'll need to look at the tacrolimus and the cyclosporin levels and then decide what the appropriate dose is. You have to guess up front, but then you'll have to use those levels to really figure out what to do in the future. So those patients have to either be in-house, being monitored daily, or live in town and come to the hospital lab daily and have a cell phone that you can call at 1 o'clock in the afternoon and tell them what dose to go to. They can't be treated if their value won't come back till tomorrow. Because they'll either get uh, calcineurin toxicity or severe rejection, both of which are bad outcomes in patients with hep C. Yeah, you, these are guys that you're, you're sending to Marion. You're, you're, you're not, you're not touching to these guys. <laughs> or, or Nora, but, uh, and, and, and if you're gonna get labs, they have to be done at a, at a lab uh, that has the you know, same day turnaround. 
you know, you can't send them to the lab cores and the quests and then the lab doesn't come back for a day or two because by that time, the, you know, your attack level could be sky high and, and they're in renal failure or they're seizing. So you, you don't, um, don't want to send them to like the, you know, the, 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 you know, the non-transplant center No, they have to lab. be in-house or right next to you. Well, isn't some of the timing, though? Uh, I know we're dipping our toes in the water at Colorado as well, but we're waiting. We're starting with these patients that are further out post-transplant because we feel a little more comfortable with their immunosuppression if they're So we know they're on a stable dose. Yes, and they may not require as much. So this is the, as Jennifer told you, the tacrolimus is really enormously increased, but even cyclosporin is. So you need therapeutic drug monitoring very carefully. So, this is the data. I remember I told you he is um, non-CC, that this is donor-recipient data. You're putting in someone else's pre-loved liver. And the second one is, the, is this is donor-recipient. So, if donor and recipient are both CC, you have a great chance of getting an SDR post-transplant. But, and if neither are CC, you have a pretty wimpy chance of responding. But if one or the other uh, CC, favorable genotype, then you have a 40 to 50% chance. This is Mike Charlton's data on a small number of patients, I think now up to 112. But the idea that the donor has an interferon responsive yes or no, or good or bad, but also the recipient has, but also the donor liver can induce a good or not so good interferon response. So, he got treated with PEG riba because the transplant team weren't willing because, PE because Deceprovir and Telaprovir were still too new last year. And at week four, his HCBRNA was less than 43, and he went on to get an SDR. We show this data because he was a null responder who didn't respond to PEG-RIBA, who got into trouble, who progressed his disease, who got into trouble with triple therapy, who had an adverse genotype, but he got a liver that had a good genotype, and therefore he had a 50-50 chance of responding according to these tiny little data. Do you have any comments, Dr. Kuo? No, I mean, I think he got really lucky. You know. He was lucky. <laughs> <laughs> the team was lucky and he was lucky. So I think the important thing to think of in cirrhotics is that the question that someone in the audience asked is, A, you have to diagnose the cirrhosis, and B, you have to decide whether you can take the risk of the patient decompensating. Because is the patient in a position to get a transplant? And then C, are there interferon-free regimens that are come, going to come along with a lower risk of failure? And we don't know the answer to those things, but I think it's important to discuss them with the patient. There was a question about splenomegaly, and we recently admitted a patient with decompensated disease who was started on interferon, who didn't have a liver biopsy, didn't have an INR, but her platelet count was 240,000. And she decompensated with synthetic dysfunction, hepatic encephalopathy, sepsis, 
renal failure and died. And her platelet count was 240 because she'd had a splenectomy 20 years ago when they gave, 30 years ago when they gave her the hep C. So it's really important to stage patients. Um, I think that's my last slide. So do we have any questions? Would you treat or transplant patients on methadone maintenance? My favorite question. <laughs> All right, UCSF, we don't treat, we don't transplant patients on methadone. We did a pilot study of five patients on methadone and it was not successful in terms of control of the patient's pain, compliance and post-transplant outcomes. Alex, what do you uh, do? You know, we, we do, although we, we, we do transplant patients on methadone, a few patients. Uh, we have a pretty rigid sort of pain um, contract, and as part of their evaluation, they have to see a, a pain specialist and have a documented medical reason for their narcotic use, uh, but we'll do it. Uh, th these patients tend to declare themselves. You know, the, the ones that are going to be compliant, and they show up to your clinic, and they do what you ask, I love, I, I'd transplant that patient, even if they're on some low-dose methadone. It's the ones that, um, you know, that they, they abuse the pain contract and their prescription's always running out a week before the end of the month. Um, they will, um, they'll, they'll show their true colors and uh, they'll fall out of the process. And we don't transplant patients who are drinking alcohol or using IV drugs or who don't have a home or who don't have someone to look after them 24-7. That's because the livers are limiting. You have another question? Oh, please come to the microphone. Go ahead. I'm stuck on child QB. <laughs> <laughs> so someone who, pro who you know and have evidence that in, in the past was a B, and they clean up their life, they're doing wonderful, and they're a nice clean A. Still a cirrhotic, but an A. Do you consider that person a B? This is, let's say, two years ago they were a B, or a year ago they were a B. Now they're an A. You know, maybe I'll answer first. My, the one scenario where I might be persuaded to believe that they're now really an A and not really a B would, would be the patients that um, they decompensate in the past in the setting of alcoholic hepatitis. You know, and, and we get a lot of these guys where um, their numbers look terrible and their billies are 20 and they've got ascites, but that was in the setting of their binge. And then once they stop drinking, you know, six months out, it's, it's pretty remarkable. Their, their, their enzymes can, you know, can normalize, the synthetic function bounces back, they, they gain weight, their society goes away, they're not on any medications, and for all intents and purposes, they really were, they really are an underlying child's A. And those patients, you know, I, I think probably okay. Uh, but if you didn't have like a, a reversible um, uh, precipitant that caused the, the cause of decompensation in the past, and it was just their hep C, and then they got sicker, and now they're sort of pseudo-stable, I'd worry about those. Because they're really sort of A minus. They're thinking about becoming a B every day, and all you have to do is blow on them, and they turn into a B. <laughs> so this is our last question for each of the panel. Should we be treating any cirrhotic patients without a transplant consult? Uh, I think you got to have yeah. a good relationship with your local hepatologist. Um, and so I think if you get in trouble, you know, they're on speed dial. It's not like, you know, it's going to take, you know, three months to get into the clinic. 
Um, you know, it might be good to, if you're worried about it to, to send them for sort of a you know one-time evaluation just so they they're in the system and they're they're known to the to the transplant team. Uh, but I, I'd say most of the time, if if you're first, don't start with the serotic. Start with you know the non-serotic you know yeah. stage zero and ones. And once you've built up you know an experience with those patients, and then you can you can branch out to some of the sicker patients. But I I would I would really try to you know collaborate with your hepatology and transplant team just so they know about these patients. Do you talk to your transplant team before you treat a cirrhotic, Dr. Weil? Um, and do they in Colorado? We do. So I think one of the other things is you have to be very careful about um, working up your cirrhotics adequately. So obviously, in, so in our co-infection clinic, which is all I do, if we find somebody that has evidence of cirrhosis, if it's biopsy, whatever, um, we will send them to at least GI or hepatology and make, sh make sure they have a, you know, some assessment for HCC usually at triple-phase CT initially if they've had no imaging before, but something. They need some imaging, and they all need EGDs to make sure they don't have varices. So, I mean, and that's where we get our hepatology or GI colleagues involved right away. If, if they don't have any evidence of varices, their imaging is clean, there's, there's not even splenomegaly or any evidence of intra-abdominal varices, we will treat cirrhotics in our co-infection clinic. Um, but anybody who has any suggestion that they have significant portal hypertension or anything beyond, we don't treat them. We send them to hepatology to let them kill them. Colorado? <laughs> no, they don't do that. Colorado, do you know? Um, yes, we're, we're sending them all to or at least um, I think over. The, <laughs> the most important thing is to think about it, to think, is this patient cirrhotic? Do they have portal hypertension? And that's easy. You just look at the platelet count. The platelet count is low. They have portal hypertension. So if they have portal hypertension, you have to do an EGD. If they have varices, eh, maybe you don't want to treat that person. If their albumin isn't completely normal, you know, an albumin of three is a harbinger of something not so good. So I think you have to think about it and talk to the patient about it. If the patient's really gung-ho, then I would send, I wouldn't treat the patient with portal hypertension without having discussed them with the transplant center. Well, thank you very much. I'd like to thank the panel for their interaction. Thank you.